Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The definitive rap is proud to be the official podcast of vinnews.com. On Sunday, July 11th, there was an organized rally in Washington, D.C. titled No Fear to raise awareness about anti-Semitism. The event, organized by Alicia Wiesel, brought together roughly 60 Jewish organizations, groups from the right to the left, like the AJC, ADL, ZOA, and Stand With Us, as well as religious to the less religious, were represented. The majority of speakers refused to acknowledge the Free Palestine Movement and squad members as inspired anti-Semitism that they were responsible for the huge spike in anti-Semitic attacks and vandalism. Like all the other rallies I'd attended, there were maybe one or two speakers willing to call out the squad, but only if they could also criticize Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. I want to give a special shout out to Megan McCain, who spoke, and she did not hold back. What the rally proved to me was that we are a very divided people who can't even do the bare minimum, and that is to name Linda Sarsour or squad members as the main instigators of the increased anti-Semitism. One speaker, David Saperstein, felt he had to say, I oppose the occupation. The Biden administration's representative condemned only white supremacist-inspired anti-Semitism. Jonathan Tobin, whom Bela will introduce shortly, wrote a great column about this rally titled, Are Jews Really United Against Anti-Semitism? Which is also posted on our website at thedefinitiverap.com. Bela? Thank you, Alan. So before we continue with our show, I would like to announce some wonderful news that has been in the works. The Definitive Rap will now be on Israel News Talk Radio, a Fox News Radio affiliate. This is Israel's premier online radio station for news and talk programming in English and has an audience in 160 countries. In fact, today's show will be featured as our first show on Israel News Talk Radio. So anyway, on to our topic. It, as Alan said, it was very inspiring watching 2,000 people who spent a sweltering afternoon in front of the U.S. Capitol at a rally on Sunday that denounced anti-Semitism as un-American and made the case that Jewish identity and support for Israel are inseparable. What I found to be so effective about this rally in particular is that some speakers were people who have suffered anti-Semitic attacks in recent years. And the message among these speakers was that they never expected to suffer such attacks in the United States. From Chabad Lubavitch, Rabbi Shlomo Noginsky, who sustained stab wounds in, in the July 1st attack in Boston. His arm was still in a sling at the time. To Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, who described saying the vidui, the Jewish prayer before death, as a gunman shot 11 worshipers in the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh in October of 2018. It was disheartening that although invited to join, representatives of more left-wing groups opted out of attending 
because some of the sponsoring groups adhere to a definition of anti-Semitism that encompasses harsh criticism of Israel, groups like J Street and Americans for Peace Now. We have with us today to discuss the rally award-winning journalist Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of JNS, a senior contributor for The Federalist and a columnist for The New York Post, Newsweek, and Haaretz, and host of the new podcast, Top Story with Jonathan Tobin. Jonathan, welcome back again to our show. Thank you, Bail and Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you again. And congratulations <laughs> on your uh, the news about your podcast. Yeah, we're very Thank excited. Um, Jonathan, it is interesting that this past Sunday on Capitol Hill, rally goers agree that anti-Semitism is un-American. But when Israel is involved, it gets complicated. Can you make heads or tails out of this philosophy? Well, um, sort of breaking down what happened at that rally, um, I think requires us to do a couple of different separate things. Um, first of all, I give a lot of credit to the people who tried to organize it. They um, were clearly acting um, with good motives. They understood that what happened after the fighting between Israel and Hamas in May and the surge of anti-Semitic attacks since then required a strong Jewish response. It required a united Jewish communal response. Um, they were absolutely right about that. And they were right to try to make it as big a tent as possible to try and draw the whole community together. Um, the problem with what happened, you know, is th- there are a couple of, so we first have to say it was a noble effort. It was well-intentioned. It was r- the right thing to do. So I'm, you know, in, in, in my own writing and I wouldn't hear or anywhere else, you know, cast any aspersions or throw any rocks at the people that organized it. Quite the contrary. They're great. Elijah Wiesel is a quality person, wonderful person. And, you know, kuda, you know, muzzle, you know, call a vote to them. However, there are a couple of things we have to acknowledge about this, both from the point of view about what is effective activism and where we are as a Jewish community. In terms of activism, for those of us who grew up in the Soviet Jewry movement or really anything else, I mean, for those, you know, for those of us, those who grew up in the protest movement against Vietnam, whatever, you know, previous generations, there's some basic rules that pretty much everybody understands. And that, you know, one of them is, you know, you don't do a demonstration unless you can really do a demonstration, unless you can uh, turn out enough people to make it effective and really make the kind of statement that you want to make. Um, By the standards of Washington demonstrations, um, turning out a couple of thousand people, and that's, you know, being generous, you know, the Washington Post said there were only hundreds, maybe they were underestimating. I mean, as a a journalist who's covered a, you know, gazillion uh, protests, you know, I wasn't there, I you know, I know how to count. um, And I know that people who organize protests count things differently. They want sure, to make things sure. look as good as possible. And I, you know, I got no issue with that, but let's just take, you know, say there were 3000 people, which they probably weren't. That's a terrible turnout. Right. It's a terrible turnout. There, there are like a million people within million Jews, practically within driving distance yeah. of, of Capitol Hill. Yeah. And sure it was hot. 
But it was hot and it was cold when people were standing outside the Soviet consulate in the 1970s and 80s, in the rain and in the heat, in the cold. Um, you know, there are always excuses. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the summer and people want to be at the beach or wherever it is that they want to be. And maybe some people are still afraid of uh, the pandemic, although that doesn't seem to stop people when they want to demonstrate for other things. Um, but, look, you know, and I've gotten a lot of pushback on this from people on Twitter, uh, including some of the people who were there. And again, you know, call a vote to them for showing up. But that's a terrible turnout. I mean, there were, what, 60 organizations supporting this? I mean, obviously, very few of them brought any people. Because, you know, you divide it up. Um, if, if all those organizations, or even if some of those organizations, some of which are more than a letterhead, an executive director, and a mailing list, which some of them are, um, they, could have, they could have done better. There was, no, there was no mass response to this. And yeah, there wasn't a lot of notice. It wasn't that well advertised, but it, it, got, it got enough. If there had been about it, it, you know, it, it with far less notice, you know, like a million people turned into the streets of New York to support Black Lives Matter or to demonstrate against Trump. Um, so I'm not impressed with any of these excuses. And the point is, it's not just a carp. Oh, it was a lousy turnout. Is that it really said something to me as a journalist, as somebody who has to, you know, I live in, I'm not, I'm not a PR person. I'm not their PR, you know, I'm not the person doing public relations for the very nice people who organize this rally. Um, I have to live in the real world uh, as a journalist. And as a journalist who lives in the real world, that tells me that there are not a lot of Jews who are really riled up about this or riled up enough to do anything about it. And that is, an, and that is the real issue here. Not just that, you know, you know, E for effort and, you know, swing and a miss. It's that this, this Jewish community is by no means united on the idea of what is anti-Semitism and how to respond to anti-Semitism. The, you know, everything that we've seen, every survey, everything that comes across is that American Jews, like the rest of America, are mired in tri culture, tribal war, uh, partisanship, um, of, you know, on the left or the right, and they only see anti-Semitism in their political foes. Now, for people on the right, that means they're very slow to recognize when people on the right, Republican Congress, members of Congress, do stupid or bad things. You know, Paul Gosar making common cause with the Groypers and Nick Fuentes. It's a disgrace. I've, I've written about this in the past. Right. I mean, it's awful. Marjorie Taylor Greene is always saying dumb things. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, she's... Mm. She's a dumb things, you know, comment machine. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, we have people on, on the floor of Congress, like Ilhan Omar, Rashid Tlaib, and their buddies, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are demonizing Israel, demonizing supporters of Israel, giving, you know, a, a permission slip to anti-Semitism. And that is, I mean, you want to denounce anti-Semitism on the right, that's fine. We, we, we shouldn't have to, it, it's dumb to say that, well, we have to make, you know, one or the other. Only a fool would say that. But the fact is the left has a problem with that. And it has a problem with the definition of anti-Semitism 
that includes the demonization, not harsh, not, not just harsh criticism, but the demonization of Israel, calling Israel Nazis, refusing to, to the Jewish people the right to a homeland. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So we have all of these factors. And that is, that is undermining the well-intentioned efforts of some people to forge a centrist response. I have no issue with David Saperstein saying, you know, I'm someone on the left, I oppose the quote-unquote occupation. I know David Saperstein. You know, he's against BDS. He loves Israel in his own way. We disagree on issues. The point is, he, you know, at this point, he's a right winger for some of these people on the left right. because he is a Zionist. And because he's willing to make common cause with people who disagree with him on, on political right. issues, who, you know, whether it's on Trump or anything else, or on Israel. And that is the key factor here. We are as divided as the rest of America, and we are not willing to work together, not in the kind of numbers that, is, that, that would be needed to have a, a really effective response. And that's why this response was so ineffective. Right. Well, Jonathan, you know, there's another movement afoot here, and that is now to demonize or mock those of us who call out anti-Semitism, almost like we're being treated now the way we used to call out Al Sharpton as being a racial huckster. Racial huckster. Now we're being accused of weaponizing anti-Semitism. I'll give you an example. Uh, last month, April Powers from the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, was forced to resign from her position. She was a chief equity officer, no less, because she called out anti-Semitism. And this is the new movement now. Not only are anti-Semites instigating attacks against us, but now we are going to be attacked for playing the anti-Semite card. And she's not the only one. Um, We know that there are professors on campuses that if they challenge anti-Semitism, they could either be harassed by their their colleagues or put in a position where they have to resign. And we've seen this in a number of places. So there is a much greater movement here that we're just not even acknowledging. Forget about even defining what anti-Semitism is. Now we're not even allowed to call it out. Yeah, I think there is, uh, you know, sort of the new anti-anti-Semitism. Um, and it's a defensive mechanism of the left in which it is attempting to delegitimize the discussion of, of anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism. They want to, dis, you know, they want to describe anti-Semitism as purely a function of the far right, of something that they can connect through painting by the numbers, you know, uh, call, uh, you know to, to Trump and Republicans. Um, it's it's not in their sweet spot, and it's but it's it's not just like this irrational thing that they do out of nowhere. This is connected to one of the key issues facing Americans today, and that is the question of critical race theory and intersectionalism and all the toxic radical theories that have, in the last year since the death of George Floyd, moved from the margins to the mainstream, to being normative, to being accepted. And as Americans begin to realize that their school curricula are being infiltrated by people trying to foist radical ideas in which people are divided by race, in which race is the only defining factor. And, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, wanting equity rather than equality, you know, equity meaning equal results, which is in other words, you know, for preferential treatment and for quotas, um, they are gaslighting us. They are pushing back on us and telling us that those of us who are calling them out 
are racist or making things up or in some way uh, distorting the argument when in fact they're the ones who are doing it and uh, claiming that this grassroots movement to oppose it is not a grassroots movement. It's, you know, these are lies, it's gaslighting and the same kind of games are being played with respect to anti-Semitism because they don't want the discussion of anti-Semitism to focus on this rising tide of global Jew hatred, which is emanating not from some, you know, nitwits sitting in their basements in Idaho or, you know, David Duke or, you know, or, or, or extremists, you know, the, like the, 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 the crazy person who shot up the, pits, the synagogue in Pittsburgh or the other one who, who shot up the Chabad in Poway, uh, California. Those are real, there's a real danger. But the rising tide of anti-Semitism being driven around the world isn't coming from them. It's coming from these leftists and, you know, and the anti-Zionists who are involved in this strange alliance of, you know, sort of Islamists and leftist elites who disagree about everything else, but seem to unite on their disdain for Israel and Jews. And so, you know, it's very important to them to get us off topic to get us not discussing, to, to make us not, you know, call out Ilhan Omar, who's treated as, still treated as a rock star by her party, by the late night comedians, by all the forces of popular culture, which are far more influential than, you know, some conservative writers or podcasters. Um, this is the real struggle here. It's about that. And it, it, it's all related. And it makes it that much more important for us to be very clear about where we stand on these issues and to be very clear in demanding that Jewish organizations um, say the right thing. And and the truth is many of those organizations that signed on to this and good for them for doing it, good for uh, Elisha Wiesel for getting them to do it. He's the one who had the, you know, the scoot, you know, and and the the prestige to um, push them to do so. Um, and yet many of these same organizations are signing on to Black Lives Matter proclamations, mm-hmm. supporting critical race theory, you know, Jewish Council on Public Affairs. They are part of the problem. They are really undermining. They are granting permission slips to anti-Semites with their support of these radical ideas, notwithstanding their willingness to show up and, you know, and do the right thing at a demonstration. So that's why I'm not as interested in demonstrations. I mean, I'm interested in where you stand on the key issues of the day that really are driving the anti-Semitism that we're dealing with. Jonathan, in your recent article, uh, you question whether Jews are really united against anti-Semitism. Although I agree that the rally did not draw as many people as we would have hoped. Uh, You are basing your opinion on more than just the attendance. So do you think it's fair or just indifferent or the attitude, it could never happen to me, that American Jews, particularly the left-wing people, don't seem to be as outspoken against anti-Semitism? And this phenomenon seems, seems very odd because to an anti-Semite, <clears throat> a Jew is a Jew. A left-wing, a right-wing, an anti-Semite hates a Jew because he is a Jew. I've not heard anywhere if before a Jew is attacked, he is asked, are you a, a Zionist? And if they say Zionist, they're attacked. It doesn't work that way. He is attacked because he is a Jew. So again, why isn't there more outrage? Have we not learned a painful lesson from the Holocaust that in the case of anti-Semitism, silence is not golden? 
Uh, Bailey, you're so right about um, the lesson we should remember from the Holocaust. Um, Jews of all sorts, Zionists and non-Zionists, religious and non-religious, you know, they were all murdered together. And often they did not resist together. I mean, that's one of the one of the stories I tell about the things that make me saddest in my life is that my first, this is a little bit of a, a digression, is that the first book I ever read about the Warsaw Ghetto was actually Leon Uris's novel, Mila 18, which is probably one of his better efforts. You know, not great literature, but, you know, good, good story. And in Uris's telling of the, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, all the Jews joined together, the right-wingers and the left-wingers. It was wonderful. It was only later in college when I started studying history seriously that I found out that, that wasn't true. The Jews fought separately and they died separately. The right-wingers and left-wingers couldn't get along. Um, we have, this, you know, so that's one element of it. The other is, is that, you know, I think you're, you know, you're kind of mistaking the Jews, you know, you have to understand who we're talking about. American Jews in 2021 you know, 70% of whom, you know, well, almost 90% of whom are non-Orthodox, 70% of whom describe themselves as liberals or Democrats, overwhelmingly secular, the fastest growing group within them are Jews that uh, demographers call the Jews of no religion, um, not affiliated with any movement and no real connections to Jewish law, Jewish religion. Um, All the things that held us together as a people, and that included fear of anti-Semitism from the outside, you know, the the 70 plus percent intermarriage rates are not just a factor of the fact that Jews don't care, it's that non-Jews are willing to marry us. You know, the anti-Semitism in this country is not as widespread as it was a hundred years ago, but by any means. And the point is, most of the Jewish population in this country doesn't feel threatened by any of this because they don't feel that Jewish. You know, they're not wearing signs around their head, in their neck saying, I'm a Jew the way a religious Jew or, or a Haredi yes. Jew would. They're not going to be attacked in the street, you know, very unlikely, you know, for, for being a Jew because there's nothing very, you know, there's nothing very Jewish about their lives. And I'm not judging them. This is a free country. People are free to live how they, they want to live, believe what they want to believe as they should, as they should be free. Uh, but most American Jews today aren't connected to this whole idea of Jewish peoplehood. So all the things that drove, you know, our parents out to demonstrations and gestures of support in 1967, May 1967, when Jews feared another Holocaust before the Six-Day War, or after Yom Kippur on 1973, they don't exist anymore because Jews aren't connected in that way. This Jewish population, some are, sure, and some of those were the people who turned out. Um, Some of those are, are readers who care desperately about these issues. On the other hand, a lot of Jews just feel they don't, they're not ashamed of being Jewish. Many of them feel something about Israel, but they don't really feel connected to these issues. This is not, you know, this is not about Netanyahu. It's not about settlements. It's like all these arguments we've been having all these years. It's about demography. It's about what it means to be a Jew in, in the 21st century in this country and the rates of assimilation and the declining sense of Jewish peoplehood. So I'm going to say something that you're both going to disagree with me with, um, because there's been a lot of talk that the anti-Semites don't care if you're right, left, Zionist, anti-Zionist. Today, the 
anti-Semitic movement on the left could not survive if not for the Peter Beinarts, if not for the JVPs and the if not nows, Mark Lamont Hill, the rest of them, without the support of the Jewish left, these anti-Semites could not survive. They are being blessed almost with you know, a kosher certificate um, by these groups of people. So therefore, so yes, there have been incidents like we saw in Los Angeles where they were just asked at the restaurant, are you Jewish? Uh, the kid Joey Borgen got beat up because he saw him with the yarmulke on. But I think that there are so many Jews on the left who are so virulently anti-Zionist. I mean, Bernie Sanders, to me, he's welcome in the left-wing anti-Semitic movement. Uh, they would welcome him in Gaza. I don't think they would say he's Jewish. Get him. So if you disagree well, listen, with me... I, I think you're half right, uh, Alan. Okay. Um, half certainly is they are half is better than nothing. You know? <laughs> they're, they're helped by Jews who, who validate many of their arguments. Um, but the thing about anti-Semitism is that it's always about the anti-Semites. They exist. They are, you know, Ruth, the great Ruth Weiss has wisely said, you know, that anti-Semitism was the most powerful, most successful movement of the 20th century because it latched on to every other movement, you know, Nazism, fascism, communism, Islamism. Um, it's true today. Um, so they're going to exist anyway, even without their little, you know, their, 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 you know, fellow travelers and, you know, uh, people who, who help them. But, you know, listen, there's enough we can indict Peter Beinhardt for without, you know, saying he's the reason why we have anti-Semitism. He, he's he's undermining support for Israel yeah. and he's hurting the Jewish community in many ways. And his intellectual journeys are, you know, deeply discreditable, in my opinion. But let's let's focus on on the enemy. Um, let's focus on the people who are helping the enemy. Um, but for sure. Um, but I, I, I want to, the thing that I would prefer to avoid is kind of the finger pointing and the, you know, the circular firing squad here. Um, we have uh, enough real enemies. Um, and yeah, we have strong, you know, very powerful arguments against those who are under, who are attacking Zionism, who are, who are legitimizing anti-Zionism and not recognizing it as anti-Semitism. We have to focus on that. And, and call them out for who they are and what they're doing and why they didn't show up and why even they didn't even put their names to that, to that, to that, you know, the fact that J Street, you know, quote unquote, pro-Israel, pro-peace couldn't, you know, suck it up and, and stand there um, to be next to some people who, with whom they might disagree. It's, it's, it's a terrible statement about them, but it's a very insightful statement about this, you know, about where the, the Jewish left is and uh, how they feel about things. Jonathan, one last question, real quick. How do you think we could see more changes? We will not change the anti-Semites in government. They are who they are. I care about the average American Jew. Do you think that educating people more will make a difference? Well, of course, that's part of our obligation. Um, you know, it's an uphill struggle in this country. As I said, these, these problems of Jewish peoplehood are, are far bigger than politics, uh, far bigger than the issues that we debate, uh, you know, in, in, in many ways. Um, so, of course, we have to try and educate a, a genera- you know, our children, educate ourselves with the facts about the Middle East, the facts about Israel, the facts about anti-Semitism. But I'm, I'm just going to say something I've said before in many other uh, venues. The most important quality we need in this struggle 
is not necessarily information, although information is necessary. It is courage. The courage to speak up, to say something that is unpopular and unfashionable. It's very unfashionable uh, among liberals to take stands for Israel and against anti-Zionism and to, to call things out as they are. It means sticking out. It means being unpopular. It means being, you know, one of the Porshim is the, you know, in Hebrew, the dissidents. Um, it's a hard thing to ask kids to do, especially in, in, in an age when there's not much activism. It's hard things to ask anyone to do. But that's how we are judged. Just as we judge the generation that was silent during the Holocaust for their silence, just as we praise those who were leaders during the movement for Soviet Jewry for speaking out and being willing to be dissidents and to making that ultimately a mainstream issue, we praise them. So too will we be judged by history, by our stance, according to this. That's the thing we have to worry about. It's not, not our brothers and sisters in Israel basically couldn't care less what we do. It's about our posterity. We must have the courage to do that. That's the essence. Standing up against the idols of popular culture has always been the essence of Jewish identity. That's what we have to find today again. Bela, do I have time for one comment? It'll be a quick comment. Uh, very quickly, because we're really okay, out of time. So I'm just going to call out two of the most powerful speakers at the event. One of them was Josh Washington from the Black Israel Alliance and another black woman. I don't remember her name. But her name was Marie Fisher. I just don't remember which group she was part of. And I was so impressed that they were so powerfully anti-anti-Semitism and that they didn't they don't get swept up in the whole BLM thing. So you speak about courage. They, to me, were real profiles of courage. Thank you. We are out of time. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us again on The Definitive Wrap. Thank you to our audience for tuning in and to vinnews.com. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.